celebrating the resurrection of our Savior, and I'm glad that you're here today. We've already had a wonderful day. We've had several services. We have another to come, but I'm believing God is going to speak to us in this service this morning, and I'm so grateful that he can do anything, and that because Jesus rose again, the dead will live again, and this life is not the end, that we can have a home in heaven forever, and that's the good news of the gospel message, and I'm grateful that you're here today. You can go ahead and find a seat this morning. And if you have a Bible today, I want to encourage you to grab that Bible and go to Acts chapter 13. The New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible today, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. And we want you to leave with that Bible so that you can have a Bible to read on a daily basis. Most of the verses will be on the screen as well today. But Acts chapter 13, is anybody ready on Easter to dive into God's word this morning? We started this church five years ago with a simple mission statement. Reaching people with a life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. And the reason the message of Jesus is life-changing is because the tomb is empty this morning. And we can have confidence in that. Acts chapter 13, verse number 26 is where we will start. The Bible says this, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them, in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Verse number 30. But God raised him from the dead. Aren't you thankful for that today? For a few minutes this morning, I want to speak to this subject. Take a deep breath. Let's all do that together. Take a deep breath this morning. There it is. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this service that we can come together and worship you and declare that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, thank you for the services that we've already had today and for the service that will come. But God, I pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way over the next few minutes and that we will have an understanding of what the resurrection means for us on a personal level. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. And God, uh, we pray that you be pleased with everything that's said and done today. In Jesus' name, amen. Katie and I are blessed to have three beautiful children. And right now, all of our children are at the age, at the ages where they like to push each other's buttons and get on each other's nerves. How many of you have siblings today and you know what I'm talking about? And it will not be uncommon in our household for Katie and I to be in one room and uh, going about our business and then to hear inevitably someone scream or someone cry or someone to get hurt or someone to get punched. And Katie and I, in those moments, we've learned, uh, we've learned a parenting hack. Do you want to hear it this morning? Here's the parenting hack. If a child screams and immediately there is crying, normally things are going to be okay. <laughs> normally things are fine. It's in those moments when you hear a scream followed by silence 
that's when you have to be worried because they are crying so hard that no sound is coming out, okay? And so inevitably in our household, sometimes this will, uh, this will happen. The other day, my youngest daughter, Blakely, she loves little critters and creatures, and she was outside playing, and uh, I heard a scream, and she ran in the house, and her cheeks were all red, and she was crying, and she was exasperated and trying to communicate something to me. And I said, Blakely, what's wrong? And I didn't know if she was hurt, and I said, calm down, calm down. And I said, Blakely, take a deep breath and, and tell me what's going on. She, she kind of gathered herself and took a deep breath, and she said, she said live dropped my roly-poly bug <laughs> and she had found a little roly-poly and Liv took it and dropped it on the ground and uh, that was the end of the day for her you know she was completely exasperated at that and I think the reality is all of us on some level can relate to that feeling uh, maybe not to dropping a roly-poly bug uh, but all of us can relate to that feeling when we feel as though in life we're trying to catch our breath maybe today you are in a season of busyness and you are trying to catch your breath Maybe you have been battling a health trial, and it's been ongoing and incessant, and it's been discouraging, and you're just trying to catch up. Perhaps there is marital conflict in your life, or relational struggle, or perhaps there is stress in your workplace, or uh, maybe even today when you consider the politics of the day and the constant division and turmoil, when you think about all the division and the hatred, it just causes you to be stressed, and it's difficult to breathe easy. How many of you have ever been there this morning? And several years ago, my wife Katie uh, was having a surgery, and when she was done having that surgery, they gave uh, her a device like this. How many of you have ever seen a device like this? And uh, this is where you can uh, stretch uh, your lung capacity and strengthen your breathing. And the doctor told Katie, you need to do this several times a day. But Katie was not being a good patient, and she did not want to do this. And so I took it upon myself to be her breathing accountability partner. And I would come in and say, all right, it's time for breathing. It's time to, to, to have a checkup. And uh, you, you inhale with this device, and the balls will go up, and you can see how your breath level is. I will now do my de demonstration for us this morning, okay? Pretty good, right? But if you take a big, deep breath uh, inside and inhale, that last ball will come up as well. Uh. There it is, okay? And uh, thank you so much uh, for that encouragement. And, uh, you know, in the Bible, it's interesting. The Hebrew word for discouragement actually means out of breath. And there are times when we can feel as though we're trying to catch our breath, we're discouraged, we're out of breath. If anyone felt this way, in the Old Testament, it was a man named Job. How many of you remember Job's life? Uh, Job went through a great season of adversity. Uh, Job uh, lost his family, he lost his friends, he lost his possessions. Job lost everything, trying to catch his breath, completely exasperated. And what did Job say in Job chapter uh, 33, verse number 4? The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. And I love the power of this statement. Job said, even when I was in my darkest hour, even when I was hurting, even when I lost my loved ones, even when I was confused and trying to catch my breath, it was God Almighty that breathed new life into me and gave me the strength to move forward. And I believe today that if God could do it for Job, then God can do it for you. And he can breathe new life into your home and breathe new life into your marriage. And God can give you the wind in your sails to move forward. This is the message of Easter. Because Jesus breathed again, we can too. 
Because Jesus conquered the grave, we can be victorious in this life. Now, we come to Acts chapter 13 today, and the reason we are coming to Acts chapter 13 on Easter Sunday morning is because the content of this section of Scripture is centered on one thing, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to Acts chapter 13, I believe it's important for us to kind of get the context and get our bearings What we're reading is the writings of a man named Luke. The human author of the book of Acts is a man named Luke. He was a historian and he was a physician. And the way that Luke wrote was with incredible detailed accuracy. Even secular historians for centuries have had a great respect and revere for the way that Luke wrote uh, the book of Acts and Luke's gospel because it can be verified time and time again throughout history. And so for years and centuries, uh, historians have actually looked to Luke's writings uh, to get validation for other writings in history. That's how uh, detailed and accurate Luke was. In fact, uh, one author, J.B. Lightfoot, a a profound scholar, speaks seven different languages. He said this, No ancient work, speaking of Luke's writings, affords so many tests of veracity, for no other has such numerous points of contact in all directions with contemporary history, politics, and topography, whether Jewish, Greek, or Roman. And so Luke's writings have stood the test of time. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that when we open up the Bible to Acts chapter 13, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Uh, We can know that what we are reading is verified and trustworthy and accurate. And I love how Luke wrote. Luke wrote for the skeptic. He wrote for the person that comes to church on Easter Sunday, perhaps out of obligation or because someone invited them and, and is wondering deep down, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if Jesus really did rise from the grave. I'm not sure if I believe what the Bible says to be true. See, Luke wrote for that person in mind. And what Luke is saying is, hey, if you are having doubts, if you are a skeptic, if you are searching for answers, hey, keep on investigating and keep on searching for truth because the truth will set you free. And so when we come to Acts chapter 13, Luke is writing with detailed historical precision, and he's talking about uh, a man named the Apostle Paul, who Paul went on to start several churches, what's often called his missionary journeys. And in Acts chapter 13, Paul is on his very first missionary journey. His home base, uh, the home city was Antioch of Syria. And Paul and his team and Barnabas and, and John Mark, they left Antioch of Syria, and they went, and they went uh, west, and then they went north, and they ended up in a city called Antioch of Pisidia, not to be mistaken with Antioch of Syria. And they land in this city, and Paul arrives here, and the first thing that he does is he goes to the synagogue. Everybody tracking with me so far this morning? The first thing he does is he goes to the Jewish synagogue. Now, he did that on purpose. Because in ancient culture, it was customary. If you showed up to a synagogue, you would be welcome to speak. And so if, you, if that was the case today, you could just show up. And if you were the guest, you can take in. Let's hear what you have to say. And that's what they would do in the first century. And so Paul knew that if he went to the synagogue, he would have an opportunity to speak. And he'd be able to preach the gospel both to Jews and Gentiles. And what I believe with all my heart is what Paul says in that ancient synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia can change your life forever. Because what Paul says in that synagogue is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe today that as we look at this text, what we find is encouragement, what we find is hope, what we find is is purpose. And what I want to do today for a few minutes is I want to give us three reasons from this text that we can breathe again. Would that be okay today? Three reasons that we can breathe again. Number one is this. 
we can breathe again because God is still running the show. He is still running the show. I want you to see in our text today, and I would encourage you to keep your Bible open and ready this morning. Verse number 26. It says, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. So he's talking to Jewish people. And then he says this, and whosoever among you that feareth God. And so in other words, he says, Jewish people and Gentile people and anyone that's listening. And so a very broad audience. Then he says this, to you is the word of this salvation sent. And I just love that little phrase. He says, hey, I want you to know that salvation has been sent. Uh, Salvation is not in draft form, just kind of waiting to be sent. No, the, the message of salvation has been sent. Why? Because God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfectly sinless life, to die on the cross, and to conquer the grave three days later. And that is why Paul could say salvation is here. Salvation has been sent. All right. Now, notice verse number 27. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not. Who, who did they not know? Jesus. They didn't recognize Jesus. Now, why would the leaders in Jerusalem not recognize Jesus for who he was? Because Jesus did not fit in their box of expectation. They wanted Jesus to overthrow uh, the Roman government. They wanted him to establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus had no intention of establishing an earthly kingdom. Jesus had every intention of establishing an eternal kingdom. And so they knew him not. They didn't expect the Messiah to be this man from Nazareth. So they didn't know him. But then Paul goes on and he says this in verse 27. Nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. He says they failed to ascertain and comprehend the scriptures that they read every single Sabbath day. They were reading these scriptures, many of those scriptures which would prophesy about the coming Messiah. They failed to understand them. He said they heard them every single week. In other words, they had the scripture in their heads, but they did not have the scripture in their hearts. Be very careful if you come to a place of dry religion where you know what the Bible says, but you fail to understand what the Bible means in your life. It's one thing to have a religious, perfunctory performance where you just go through the motions. It's another thing to apply God's word in your heart and to actually know and do what it says. And so this was an indictment on the leaders of Jerusalem because they heard the scriptures every Sabbath day, but they failed to recognize who those scriptures were about. And then he goes on and he gives the final blow to the leaders at Jerusalem at the end of verse 27. Everybody with me? He says, they, those leaders, have fulfilled them. What did they fulfill? The scriptures, the prophecies. They fulfilled them, watch this, in condemning him. And so because they rejected and condemned Christ, in so doing, they unwittingly and inadvertently fulfilled the very scriptures that they ignored. In other words, God is still running the show. And what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. They rejected him, they condemned him, but in so doing, they fulfilled the scriptures. Can I tell you today that our God is still in control? He's still on the throne. He is still sovereign and still reigning today. He's the King of Kings and He's the Lord of Lords. He's still running the show. Even though they ignored him and they condemned him they ended up fulfilling prophecy because our God is always working even behind the scenes our God is running the show many times God will allow us to experience adversity and it doesn't make sense to us we're walking through a difficult season we're exasperated we're trying to catch our breath and we're trying to figure out what's going on in life and God will allow us to go through a season like like this because he's in control 
Because there's always purpose in our pain. Uh, there's always a reason why God allows us to go through those difficult seasons. I was reading recently about uh, the planes that were coming back from World War II. The Navy leaders got together and they were observing where these planes were taking the most bullets. And they wanted to reinforce those areas to make the planes stronger. And so what they discovered was uh, most of the bullet holes of the planes that were coming back were in the wings and in the body of the plane. And so they decided naturally, well, maybe we should put armor on the wings and on the body of the plane to make it stronger so that it can withstand those bullets that are flying uh, at these planes. But there was a man named Abraham Wald. He was a mathematician and a statistician, and he was not happy about their conclusion, and he pressed the issue further. And it was his conclusion that they needed not to uh, armor, go back to the picture for a second, that they needed not to armor the wings and the body, but they needed to armor the nose of the plane and the engines. Because he said, when a plane gets hit in the nose and engines, those are the planes that are not even coming back to safety at all. They're being completely destroyed. And so the Navy thought that they discovered where the planes were taking the most damage. But what they actually discovered was where the planes were taking the most damage and not being destroyed so that they could go out back out for service. What I'm telling you today, by the grace of God, is that the bullets that come into your life and the adversity that comes into your life is not meant to destroy you, but to deploy you for greater service in the kingdom of God. God knows what he's doing. He's always working behind the scenes. And so Paul stands up in the synagogue and he says, they condemned Jesus and rejected Jesus, but in so doing, they fulfilled the scriptures because God knows what he's doing. Now this leads us to our second thought today. Number two is this, we can breathe again because resurrection power is available. Resurrection power is available. Now notice our text in verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, Yet desire they Pilate that he should be slain. So they went to Pilate and they said, crucify this man. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, took him down from the cross, and laid him in a sepulcher. In Joseph's tomb, verse number 30. But God raised him from the dead. He breathed again. They thought that he took his last breath on the cross, but here Jesus breathes again, and we see the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just want to make it very plain to everyone listening on Easter Sunday that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith collapses. The resurrection is not simply a component of our faith. The resurrection is the very center, the very cornerstone, the very capstone of our faith. Take it away, the whole thing crumbles. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. And we're just wasting our time. But thank God he is alive today. And Jesus did resurrect from the grave. And I want us to see three things that Paul points out about the resurrection. And if you want to jot a couple of these things down, you can. But, but three things about the resurrection. First, I want us to understand the evidence for resurrection. The evidence for resurrection. Notice what Paul says in verse number 31. Everybody with me today? Verse 31. And he was seen, Jesus was seen many days. Everybody say many days. He was seen after he resurrected in bodily form many days of them which came up from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses unto the people. There was witnesses. It wasn't just take my word for it. No, there's witnesses of the resurrection. And what Paul is doing is he's pointing out to that little synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, he is saying that there are witnesses, there is evidence for this resurrection. It can be verified, it can be validated. Uh, Paul said it this way to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
In verse number six, after that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And I would encourage you today, if you need some validation of the resurrection, this verse is so powerful because what Paul is saying is that after Jesus rose from the grave, after Jesus conquered the grave, 500 people saw him at one time. Now, what that means is, for any skeptic who would say, well, people just imagined that they saw Jesus, there was just a hallucination. It's hard to have a mass hallucination with 500 people at one time. In fact, it's scientifically impossible. And so what Paul says is 500 brethren saw him at once, and then he says this next line, which is so profound. He says, unto the greater part, they remain until the present. In other words, those 500 people, many of them are still here today. And so he was writing to a real church in the real ancient city of Corinth. And he was saying, if you're doubting the resurrection, you can go to these people. They're still alive. You can find out for yourselves. This does not sound like a man that's trying to hide something. It it, it doesn't sound like a man that's saying, hey, don't ask any questions. No, it sounds like a man who is fully convinced and fully knows that Jesus is alive and well. And he says, if you're struggling to know this to be certain, go and find out for yourself. Investigate for yourself. There is evidence for the resurrection. The Bible says in Acts 1-3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Thomas Arnold, a former professor of modern history at Oxford, said this, no one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. So Paul, first of all, says there's evidence for resurrection. But then he talks about this. He says there's joy in resurrection. And I'm so thankful for this uh, this statement that Paul makes and this reality, that there's joy in resurrection. Notice what he says in verse 32. He says, and now we declare unto you glad tidings. He says, I have good news for you. The message of the empty tomb is is a message of glad tidings. It's a, it's a message of hope and a message of joy and good news and gospel news. Uh, a few years ago, we were on vacation and uh, our family was uh, relaxing a little bit. We were out by the pool and my son Luke was, was swimming in the pool and I was watching him and he was just having a great time. He was jumping in, jumping out. I could tell he was having a blast. And he got out of the pool for a minute. He came and he stood by me and I was wondering kind of what he needed and he didn't say anything for a second. And then he, then he said, Dad... I'm happy. <laughs> and, uh, and at that moment, it kind of filled my heart with joy. And I was like, Luke, I'm happy that you're happy. And uh, it was such a simple statement, but it was so sincere. I'm happy. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, our Heavenly Father wants us to experience real joy. Sometimes we think that following Jesus means that we're going to have to miss out on some good part of life, or we're going to experience a lesser life, or we're not going to be able to really YOLO. You only live once, so let's just do, uh, let's just live crazy. Let's just have fun. Uh, No, uh, life following Jesus is the best life possible. And Paul says, because of the resurrection, there is good news. There is glad tidings. And I want you to know, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then the reverse is true. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if it's only about this life, if this life is the end, if we live, we breathe, we die, and that's it, then notice what he says. We are of all men most miserable. If Jesus did not resurrect from the grave, we are of all men most miserable. By the way, many philosophers throughout history have agreed with that statement. 
Frederick Nietzsche agreed with that. He said there is no God, and without, without a God, there is no purpose. There is no real meaning in life. There is no uh, real purpose in life. Solomon said that in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says that without God, then life is ultimately meaningless. Uh, one atheist, William Provine said this, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. That's an honest statement and summary of life without God. If there is no God, then we're just here for a little while, and then we die, we go to the grave, and that's it. And so people everywhere today, in the culture, in the world today, are searching for hope. They're searching for happiness. They're searching for joy in so many different places. Uh, Jerry Jerry Seinfeld said that people search for comedy and search for uh, laughter uh, to try to find what he calls little islands of relief in what is often a painful existence. Just trying to find some little bit of relief, some little bit of happiness. And many people look for money. Many people look for a career. And they're searching for a purpose. And they're searching for happiness. And make no mistake about it. You can find happiness for a season. You can even find some temporary purpose in life. You can even find a cause to live for. Just open up social media today, and you'll find all kinds of different causes that you can identify with. You can find a cause to live for. You can find a temporary purpose to live for. You can find some temporary happiness. But there is no ultimate happiness and ultimate satisfaction and ultimate purpose without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we can find temporary happiness and purpose, and then we die, and that's it. But I want you to know that we are far more than just a physical body. We have a soul that will live on forever, and there is an eternal purpose for your life created before the foundation of the world. And Psalm 16, verse number 11 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And I just want to preach good news on Easter Sunday morning that joy is available because of the resurrection. It doesn't matter what the gas prices are. It doesn't matter what turmoil you're going through today. Our joy is not about a situation. Our joy is linked to resurrection. And so Paul says there's evidence for resurrection. Aren't you thankful for that today? There's joy in resurrection. But then Paul talks about the scripture of resurrection. Because what Paul does next, he's a preacher, after all, he's going to use some scripture. And what Paul does is he quotes four Old Testament passages in this message in the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia. What Paul does is he opens up God's word and he quotes the word of God. Paul was in what we would call an expositional preacher. And uh, he was preaching verse by verse. By the way, Uh, If you're new to Rock Hill, what we love to do is study the Bible verse by verse. Because at the end of the day, we believe that the word of God will not return void. And it's not about what we have to say, but it is about what God has to say. And so this is what Paul does. He stands up and he's going to quote some verses. Let's notice in verse 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That was a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse number 7, pointing ahead to the Messiah. Verse 34, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That was a quotation from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55. Verse 35, wherefore he saith also in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, verse 10, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now many people would say, well that was talking about David. David wrote it and 
He's not going to suffer the Holy One to see corruption. But then Paul, as an attorney, says, that's not what this is about. Notice what Paul says. He says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, he died, and was laid unto his fathers. And he saw corruption. Verse 37. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. And so what he's saying is this prophecy all the way back in Psalm chapter 16, verse number 10, was about Jesus Christ. Because David did see corruption. His body did decay. His body did rot in the grave. But there is only one person who has ever lived whose body saw no corruption. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Because three days later, he rose again from the grave. And so Paul is showing that scripture supports the resurrection. And all of this, the joy of resurrection, the evidence of resurrection, the scripture of resurrection, reminds us today in 2022 that resurrection power is available. You say, what does that mean? Well, the Bible puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse number 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Now, don't gloss over that statement because it has profound implications in your life. The spirit that raised up Jesus from the grave dwells in you? The same spirit that had the power to bring Jesus back to life, if you're a Christian today, lives inside of you? This means, then, that we don't have to function in our own strength and according to our own willpower and according to our own knowledge. This means that it's not about me trying to catch my breath and being the strongest person that I can be. It means that the Holy Spirit of God has indwelled me to fill me, to give me strength to move forward, his breath in my lungs so that I don't have to go through life on my own, but I can lean and trust in his power. This is great news for us today. Resurrection power is available. Dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. And so you can breathe again, thirdly today and lastly, because forgiveness is free to those who believe. You have one more point in you today? Forgiveness is free to those who believe. Now, what Paul does next is he makes a transition, as a lot of times preachers will do. They'll make a turn, they'll make a transition. And Paul goes from an explanation and an interpretation to now what is called an application. So in other words, Paul says, okay, here's what the Bible said in Isaiah 55 and Psalm 1610 and Psalm 2 verse number 7, and he explains it. And now he says, here's why this matters. Here's why this is so significant. He says, okay, in case you're wondering how this applies to you, let me tell you why this applies to you in the same message that applied then, it applies to us today. You want to see it? Let's notice it in verse 38. Here's the application. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The application today is that forgiveness of sins is available. And in case you are unaware, forgiveness is mankind's greatest need. Because we are all sinners that fall short of the glory of God. None of us in here are perfect today. None of us are without sin. And that means that there's a price to be paid. And that means that we need forgiveness. In Judaism, they recognize this. That's why they celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that one day, that special day, they can receive forgiveness of sins for that year. But I'm here today to tell you that forgiveness is available every day of the year for those that put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says forgiveness is available, but he he clarifies his statement in verse 38 by saying this. 
being known to you, brethren, that through this man, this man, did you notice, talking about Jesus, did you notice he didn't say that through this church? He didn't say through this synagogue. He didn't say through this belief system. He said through this man, through Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins. And what this means is that salvation and the forgiveness of sins is only available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4 verse number 12 says that there is no name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that can save. Paul says, through this man is offering the forgiveness of sins. But then it goes on. In verse 39, it says this. And by him, Jesus, all that believe. Everybody say believe. That's faith. All that believe, verse 39, are justified. Now, justified is a powerful word. It's a Bible word. It's important to understand what this word means, all of us today, no matter what your background is, to know that the word justified means to be declared righteous. Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never been a sinner. God can justify you, declare you righteous. That way you can stand before a holy God. He says you can be justified, but then he gives a a statement that is so important for us to grasp. Verse 39, you are justified from all things from which you could not be justified. You could not. You could not be justified by the law of Moses. What is Paul saying? He's saying that we cannot be saved We cannot be justified. We cannot experience salvation by the works of the law. Salvation is not about trying your best to keep the Ten Commandments. Salvation is not about coming to church every single week and and doing your best to serve and being a good, godly person and being kind. Hey, those are wonderful things, but those things cannot redeem your soul. No amount of works, no amount of law-keeping can justify and save a soul. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8 and 9, it says, for by grace, grace means undeserved favor, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so salvation and the forgiveness of sins is a gift from God that we don't achieve, we receive. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. It's not us trying in our own strength to get to heaven. It's opening up our heart and hands and receiving the gift of God's son. R.C. Sproul said it this way, God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. This is what our God has done for us. Now, after Jesus was crucified, the disciples, they hid and mourned. Even though Jesus predicted his own death and he predicted his own resurrection, the disciples were still exasperated, trying to catch their breath, trying to figure this whole thing out. They were hiding what's called the upper room. And then Jesus comes three days later and he appears before them in the upper room. How many of you remember this? part of the resurrection story where Jesus appears in the upper room and Jesus says something profound to them in John chapter 20 verse 22 and when he had said this watch this he breathed on them 
Now remember, they thought that Jesus had already breathed his last breath. Now Jesus is there. He breathes on them. And he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now what does he mean and why did he say that? Jesus knew that in the days coming, the disciples would face great persecution. He knew that the disciples would face great adversity and they needed strength and they needed power that was beyond themselves. And so he says, I have good news. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. Receive the Holy Spirit. Today, there might be some dark days ahead. There will be some adversity that we face, but we can receive the Holy Spirit at salvation and God can dwell within us and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world today. He says, receive the Holy Ghost. It's his breath in our lungs. In the Greek, it's the word pneuma. It's the same Greek word for breath and spirit. And so God puts his spirit within us and in so doing, he gives us the breath to move forward so that we can breathe again. Now, the only way to truly breathe again is to be born again. In other words, the only way to experience salvation and the forgiveness of sins is to be born again. You say, well, what does that mean? Remember Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three and Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what do you mean be born again? I marvel uh, that, that you say to me, you must be born again. Jesus was talking about a new spiritual birth, regeneration. All of us has, have a physical birth date. But I wonder today, do you have a spiritual birth date? When you were born again into the family of God. And if you haven't, today can be that day for you on Easter Sunday to be born again into the family of God and experience the forgiveness of sins. And the last verse I want to read today summarizes the gospel message that Paul was preaching about that day. In Romans chapter 10, verse number nine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So today you can be saved. If you have already accepted Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you today to take a deep breath, to be still and to know that He is God and He is still in control. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.